there is still this kind of misconception that a English native speaker cannot fully translate Japanese into English because they don't have a good understanding of Japanese. And therefore, if a Japanese to English translator translates something and it's not exactly the same as the Japanese, it's often considered wrong. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Business Success Japan podcast. This is your host, Lydia B. Coleman. This podcast is made for those who want to develop or strengthen the communication skills, cultural savvy, insights into current trends and conditions, and mindsets that are essential in a Japanese business environment. The helpful practical suggestions and engaging insights offered here provide listeners with the in depth cultural context to achieve their own version of success while collaborating with Japanese counterparts. In today's episode, I get to share a conversation that I had with Heidi Carino. Heidi is a native of the UK who has just returned to her home country after spending over 20 formative years living and working in Japan. She currently runs her own business as a Japanese to English translator, and she specializes in trans creation for content marketing, where she works with clients to ensure that their originally Japanese content really resonates with their English speaking customers. But we'll hear much more about her experiences and work in the interview. So, be sure to stick around to learn more. I'm Heidi Carino. I am a Japanese to English translator who specializes in trans creation. I've been a translator for over 20 years,、um, and I've been specializing in trans creation for the last two years. Great. So, can you tell us a little bit about your history with Japan more specifically? Sure. I originally came to Japan in 98. I had absolutely no interest in Japan or the Japanese language. I met a guy in England who was studying there, who was Japanese. And when he finished his studies, he couldn't get a visa to work in the UK. So we said, let's head to Japan for a couple of years with the intention of returning to UK after he'd got some job experience. But once we got to Japan,、uh, a few things happened which we hadn't planned for. I couldn't get a job because I didn't have a degree. It was hard for him to build up experience which would be useful in the UK. So we decided to make it a long term plan. And I went to university in Japan. I went to、uh, ICU, which is in Tokyo. And I majored in English literature and Japanese language. At that point, I still had no plan to become a translator. I just needed to get a degree to get a job. <laughs> and I was planning to、uh, probably go into teaching or something like that. And in my final year of university, I got a part time job translating lyrics. And I was translating English to Japanese, which, if you don't know much about translation, you, you don't normally translate into a language which isn't your native language because it's just very hard to get the nuance. However, this particular job, I was working with a Japanese editor. So I would take the lyrics and write an interpretive translation in Japanese. Then he would do a brush up, basically, to make it more readable. And these lyrics weren't for singing, these lyrics were for CD inserts. So, it was more about creating something that would be poetic, but also explain the lyrics, but it didn't necessarily have to be rhythmically correct. 
And when I graduated university at that time, which was, what was that, 2002, 2003, it was really hard for me to go through the usual recruitment process that Japanese new graduates went through. So I was graduating in June um, and I was graduating from a Japanese university, but I was somebody who I think your standard Japanese company recruiters were finding it difficult to place, to find somewhere for me to go into. So I spoke to the guy I was working with part-time and I said, I can't find a job. Do you want to do this full-time? And it started from there. So we expanded and we started off with the lyrics and then we went into liner notes, which are kind of articles you have in uh, CD booklets and uh, interviews and then a little bit of other bits and bobs. And I did that. I worked with him until 2016. And uh, then I went in-house for OLC, who operate Tokyo Disney Resort. And I was employed as a a copywriter and a translator. And I did all the stuff. So I did, you know, um, all the translation and some copywriting things there. And I worked there until 2020, when totally unrelated to COVID, I decided to go freelance again. And I actually decided to take some time off. This was partly because of some things that were going on with uh, my family. And also, I just wanted to take a step back and think about if translation was really what I wanted to do and what I wanted to do in Japan. So I took a couple of months to study uh, copywriting formally. And then from September last year, I relaunched my freelance career by creating the Kotonaha Bloom brand, which is, it's not a company, it's just a freelance, uh, like sole trading brand, which focuses on transcreation. And then (laughs) my journey with Japan came to an end this April, when after, what would it be, 24 years in Japan, I decided to return to the UK uh, with with my family. So yeah, that's it. So I do want to get back to what you learned from studying copywriting and then also what you do in transcreation. But first, could you tell us a little bit about your experience working in-house versus doing more freelancing work? What has been the difference in your experience? Well, I'll talk about the positive side. So as a, this is not necessarily related to Japan, but I think this is just partly of what I do. Um, As a translator, you usually work alone. So you're the only person who makes a decision on your work. But when you go in-house, then you have a team of other translators to work with you. And while I found that very, very annoying and frustrating at first, I soon realized that having somebody else look at my work and looking at somebody else's work was incredibly beneficial to me. And I grew so much both emotionally as an adult and also my skills too I really really improved during that time and it helped because I had an amazing person a mentor who was uh, leading the team there and then this is possibly more to do with working in a Japanese company just learning how to deal with the administration side just learning how to be more organized how to consider that what even though I'm working alone as a freelancer my actions are having an influence on other people and that's 
kind of working in that office environment, especially in a Japanese office in, environment where you are very conscious of being part of a team and sharing responsibilities while also having a specific role. So if I don't fill in a particular document, then that's going to affect somebody else and then that's going to affect their workflow. And similarly, if I'm waiting on, say, something from the marketing team, the marketing team, if I'm freelance, I'm wondering why something is taking so long to get to me. But in-house, in I can see, okay, so the marketing team is waiting for the food and beverages team to get back. Food and beverages team is waiting for their supplier to get back. So just more deeper understanding of the flow. And then taking that information and going freelance now, it means that when I talk to my clients, I'm a little bit more aware of their situation, both um, from an administration element, but from a political element as well. I can see, I have a better idea of how politics, office politics work and how you need to approach people with certain issues and how you need to discuss things, which is probably slightly different to how I was doing it before I had that experience. So that was the positive side of being in-house. The negative side was I found it very, very hard to work fixed hours, to work hours dictated by somebody else and to not be able to take holidays when I wanted to and not be able to work remotely. Ironically, when I left in March, COVID basically carried on the progress of remote working in Japan. So that might have been less of an issue, although depending on the company, remote work is still pretty tied up to a schedule. So I found that aspect very hard, especially as I have uh, two children and I needed to take time off for school events or, you know, when they were when they were on holiday. But I couldn't really do that. And I also didn't necessarily need to be home the whole day. I could easily work and take care of my kids. But because of the role I was in, I could either be in the office or take a paid holiday. And that aspect, I think I found very difficult personally. That definitely makes a lot of sense. Could you tell us a little bit more about what trans creation is? Sure. So it's kind of funny because two years ago, I, I run a, a group for uh, translators. It's, it's a small group on Facebook, which we just support each other in our careers. And two years ago, before I started studying transcreation, I said, so what do you think about transcreation? Is this an actual thing or is this a buzzword? And I went from someone who thought it was a buzzword to understanding exactly what it is and how it's different to translation. So when people talk about transcreation, what they really mean is translation for marketing, to put it simply. So it's a combination of translation and copywriting. And people often describe transcreation as creative translation, which I don't like saying it is because all translation is creative. It's impossible to translate anything without having some element of creativity because you're creating, you're taking something which is in one language and putting it into another language. So it's impossible not to have creativity. But the difference between translation and transcreation is that transcreation focuses on a target and it's text which has a particular purpose. So to give you an example, and this is an example I use all the time, but if you translate a Japanese website into English, then you have an English website which is targeting a Japanese audience. And it's not really doing anything. Sometimes it doesn't make any difference. So if it's just the profile of your CEO, it doesn't matter if that's in English or Japanese. You can take the same text and you can translate it. But if you're selling a product 
and you're talking about how April is the start of something new. And I mean, that's not going to work if you take it to a different culture where April is not the start of something new. So you have to think that you're now talking to an English speaking audience, not a Japanese speaking audience. So transcreation is focused on those issues. So thinking about the target audience and what the text is for. And now it was never that popular or it was never that popular as in it was it wasn't that common because there wasn't that kind of clarification about it and it used to be used for literary translation which is where this understanding that it, it's creative translation comes from but as digital content marketing is becoming one of the most popular ways to market so alongside it transcreation is becoming uh, recognized as the way to translate these kind of uh, contents so especially blogs social media and any kind of uh, website which would have like a landing page or you know like product descriptions things like that so when you're trying to get a message across to a different culture that's what transcreation is is useful for so you mentioned that you formally learned copywriting are there any major takeaways that you were either surprised by or would be useful to people who are working um, abroad or in a cross-cultural environment? Before I studied copywriting formally, I was only thinking about making something catchy. So a good headline, something that was would catch your eye, and also like creatively translating Japanese into English. But I studied conversion copywriting, which wasn't a term I was aware of, but you can imagine conversion means you're converting people to want to take a certain action, whether that's buy from you or sign up to your newsletter or whatever it is. And studying that, I became a lot more aware of how very, very different Japanese copy and English copy are. So if you look at a Japanese corporate web page, it's still quite focused on us. So we, the company, we do this, we have this history, we have this amazing track record, we have all of these wonderful products, therefore you should trust us, therefore society trusts us. And the word society or contribution to society, these are terms that come up a lot in uh, Japanese uh, websites. But if you look at a Western website, you rarely see companies talking about us, they're always talking about you you the customer, we can improve your life by doing this. We are successful because of you. You need us because of whatever. So when you look at Japanese and English copy, you can see how it's based on the culture. And that was something I hadn't really looked at in depth before I studied copywriting uh, formally, because copywriting is of course it needs to be a little bit creative but it's more tactical it's more data driven so you're looking at the information uh, there's a lot of research there which is why you need to know the Japanese market and you also need to know the English market because they're just two totally different entities so what are some changes that you do make when doing transcreation from English to Japanese or vice versa well, I don't translate to English to Japanese uh, for, for transcreation, but Japanese to English. I mean, so Jap- anything in Japanese is, op- is often written in a passive tone. Um, and it's important to know that that's just the way it's written. That's just their way of communicating. But once you put that into English, it's, it's perfectly OK to make it direct and active using an active voice. So, for example even like social media or blogs, they often use the term omo, which means to think, right? 
Um, but that doesn't necessarily mean every time you translate it or transcreate it, you need to say, we think this or we think that. You can just say, this is this or this is that. And when I transcreate something, those are the words I would often pick up on. And just taking something from a passive verb and putting it into an active verb, so not we have been doing, but we did or we do. And those are things which are really, really easy to do. And I love the uh, Hemingway app. Are, are you familiar with that? I'm not. Could you tell us a little more about it? Yeah, the Hemingway, uh, I think it's called the Hemingway, as in Ernest Hemingway. It's a free app that you can use online and you paste your text into it and it will tell you the reading level of it and whether or not you're using active or passive voice. So once I've transcreated something, I'll put it in there and I'll see what the Hemingway app picks up. And if it says it's passive and I think it's passive too, then I'll, I'll give it another run through because I'm not perfect. And especially after living in Japan for 24 years, I think my copywriting voice is a lot more passive than uh, somebody who's never been in Japan. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because uh, it should still be a voice of a Japanese company. It shouldn't be like all out there and brash or like really bold, like some uh, of the corporate voice brand voices are uh, in the West. But at the same time, if it's too passive, it does look a lot more like a translation. And when somebody hires me to do a transcreation, they're looking for something which is, you know, a bit closer to the to to what is out there already on on social media or on the internet so so yeah the Hemingway app is really really good for, for for picking me up on that yeah that seems like it would be useful for anybody who has to write a lot for their job <laughs> so how do you go about marketing yourself in the transcreation niche specifically yeah so this is something I'm always struggling with it's very difficult to market yourself anyway but one of the reasons I decided to specialize in transcreation was not because was not just because I I enjoy it I'm a bit of a geek when it comes to marketing but it was because when I took time off to focus on copywriting I realized that even though I had a career of 20 years coming back to freelancing the options were quite limited so I didn't have any contacts uh, that I could work that would hire me based on the skills that they knew so the only way I could get uh, work was through translation agencies and translation agencies could only judge me based on my resume. So they'd start me off at the bottom uh, rate. And it's pretty low. It's pretty low anyway, but it's pretty low if you are in your 40s, <laughs> late in your career, and you have a family to support. And I thought, there's no way I can do this and also have a life. I would have to work like 10, 12 hours a day, six days a week to make an income. So I realized that I'd have to find something else to do, some kind of specialism. And that's when I, I started to look into transcreation. That would be something that has a huge value. It requires a lot of skill. It's something that I could definitely feel confident that I was helping people. And it's something that I would feel confident to charge more for. The only problem is that nobody knows what transcreation is. I mean, in Europe, and also I'm, I'm not from the US, but I spoke to someone who's transcreating in the US and they said it's becoming a lot more popular, especially in advertising agencies. They generally only use transcreators if they want to localize uh, some content. But in Japan, it's very 
very few people uh, outside of uh, translation know what it is. So it's not as if I'm saying, hey, I'm a trans creator and everyone's going, oh, that's just what I was looking for. It's more like, okay, this is trans creation. This is what it can do for you. You definitely need this and I can help you. So first it starts with educating people about what it is, telling people about what it is. And there were lots of platforms I could use. So I could have a blog. Uh, I could have my website, which I have. Uh, I could go on Twitter. And I chose LinkedIn, which is not a popular choice um, because statistically, there aren't that many people on LinkedIn in Japan. In the UK, there are 36 million users, which I think is pretty much the whole working population. When there's, what, 60 million in the UK, 36 million users is a lot. In Japan, there's 2 million users, so <laughs> not many people. But the reason I decided to go on LinkedIn is because it's a professional network. And I've seen a lot of copywriters and translators who are freelance market themselves on there and have some success. And if even though there's only 2 million users in Japan, if they're on there, then they're obviously interested in connecting with a global market, which means they'll be interested in the kind of thing that I do. So I've had to put a break on it at the minute while I've been moving to the UK, but I started last September, I started posting every single day and I try to post about a little bit about what transcreation is. So sometimes I'll tell people literally what transcreation is. Other times I will do something transcreatively. So uh, every Friday, I have a Friday favorites corner where I would transcreate, say, a Japanese kanji compound, the yojijukugo, or a proverb of Japanese, and just show how the difference between translating something and transcreating something. And then other times, I'll just talk about you know who I am and, and, and what I do. And at the same time, I also became active on Twitter. And Twitter, for me, uh, and Instagram as well, are different because LinkedIn is more about connecting with, it's about connecting with my peers, but it's also kind of showing people what transcreation is and just increasing awareness in the industry. Whereas Twitter is about connecting with other translators, especially English to Japanese translators. And I've never, ever done that before. It's pro I probably shouldn't say this, but I often thought, like, what's the point? I have to spend all of this time marketing. Uh, what's the point in connecting with people who are not going to give me any work? That's a very, very bad way to think, I realize now. Because firstly, connecting with English to Japanese translators is incredibly educating. I mean, they have they have as much knowledge as, as I do and more. Some of them have been in the industry maybe twice as long as me. Sorry, they have a, a bigger, um, they're all connected to translation agencies. So they know a lot about the ins and outs of that. As well, speaking to somebody who is bilingual gives you another understanding of the language, especially uh, the Japanese language. It doesn't matter how long you've been learning a language, you're never going to know it 100%, I think. So having that connection with an English or Japanese translator means you can get another aspect, another perspective, which might help you find another angle when you're translating. And the other thing is, which I never really planned for, is the more I know English or Japanese translators and the more I connect with them, uh, the more likely they are to you know, recommend me to somebody. And similarly, I have had the opportunity to recommend a lot of English to Japanese translators to uh, European and American hires. So even though connecting with translators on 
Twitter was never part of my marketing strategy. It has kind of evolved that way to be something that is is in there and something that I do set aside time to do. Right. Especially if you're struggling to start out and find your clients, I feel like it can be really easy to get a little overly utilitarian when it comes to your approach to finding people and building relationships and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think at the beginning, like LinkedIn was really, was really hard for me, but any kind of uh, marketing, because I never did social media personally. I took about three or four years off social media anyway. So I was coming to it quite new. And at the beginning, I'm probably going to cringe if I look back at some of the things I wrote at the beginning. But after a while, I just realized that worst case scenario, any Thing I do on social media would be directly related to my skill set. So digital marketing is what I want to translate for. That's what transformation is for. So if I'm marketing myself, whatever I put out there, I'm practicing my writing skills, I'm learning what works uh, and what doesn't work. So even if nobody comments or even if nobody you know likes what I do it's not a waste of my time. And then once I felt like that, I felt a lot more freedom to write things that I wanted to write. So it doesn't necessarily have to be about translation or transcreation. Uh, it could be about something that happened to me or, you know, something that I did. And then, and actually those kind of posts sometimes lead to, to opportunities because people feel, you know, more of a connection with you. And, and I think that's what being, that's what marketing yourself as a freelancer is all about, right? It's about being connected to an individual, you you don't you're not looking for a corporation. You're looking for somebody who you can trust, uh, somebody who you know. Of course, somebody who has the skills to to follow through. But as an individual, whether you're marketing yourself in UK or or in Japan, I think it's that it's that connection that is is significant, and that's why somewhere like LinkedIn has has worked and is working for me. I think. So going back to what you were saying earlier, do you have any idea about why it might be that Japan has a little bit less awareness when it comes to trans creation compared to Western companies? Is it a certain concept of how language works or of how translation should work or how cultures work? Where does this stem from, do you think? Well, this is just my theory. I haven't researched this. Firstly, I think that when it comes to digital marketing as a strategy, Japan is not as up there as other countries, say like the UK um, or the US, which all have official social media accounts. They're blogging all the time. Their websites are updated constantly. They have this whole digital marketing branding in place. It's part of their strategy. It's, it's a very effective part of their marketing strategy. Whereas I don't really see that so much in Japan, maybe with the major brands, but not with something mid or, or, or a smaller brand. So firstly, this concept of translating for a target is not really there I think so then not necessarily the need um, this consciousness is not there secondly and this has something to do with the way the translation industry has evolved in Japan there is still this kind of misconception that a English native speaker cannot fully translate Japanese into English because they don't have a good understanding of Japanese um, and therefore if a Japanese to English translator translates something and it's not exactly the same as the Japanese it's often considered 
wrong. And to say why it's not wrong and why it's it's effective and why it's better that way, you need to have a good communication with your translation agency or you need to be able to communicate that effectively to your client. And not everybody's in a position to do that. So unless the translation agencies are understanding the benefits of transcreation, it's almost impossible for an individual like me to to kind of make it popular. And I think the reason translation agencies are not pushing this is just because there isn't really that much of a demand for it and people don't really understand the benefits of it. It's not really being explained fully as, you know, as what it can do. Yeah, and it makes sense that if you are valuing correctness over effectiveness that transcreation might not be such an easy thing to accept (laughs) for Japanese companies yeah yeah exactly yeah great so going a little bit back to your experience working especially in-house what are some lessons that you learned in terms of humility compromise and collaboration in Japanese companies anything you've learned that you think other people could benefit from Yeah, so I think for me, the biggest lesson was keeping my mouth shut, (laughs) which is, which is very, very hard for me to do. I think, maybe culturally, or just personality wise, I don't really like to waste time. And I just want to get straight to the point. And I don't mean to be offensive or anything like that. I just feel that being honest, and clear is the most efficient use of anybody's time. And I think that is probably quite in line with like Western culture. I think that's how we tend to feel. Whereas in Japan, that's not how you do things. You you have to sit and you need to listen and you need to consider every single angle um, before you even begin to approach the main topic. And that was something that was very hard for me to do and originally I thought was the wrong way to do things so I guess you could say that taught me humility realizing that I'm not always right it did teach me that sometimes I would have to understand that the way I wanted to do it was was not the way that it was going to work or not the way that it was going to happen and there were a lot of things that I felt were not going to be effective so even say for example even like transcreation and that that happened when I was working in-house in that I wanted to translate it this is a very minor thing but I wanted to translate it a particular way which I knew would make sense but I was not able to translate it that way because it had been translated a different way for years and years before that Um, And if I wanted to change that translation, it would affect material, say, throughout the field. So this this is talking like, say, Tokyo Disney Resort. I wanted to change that one tiny line that would affect, say, menus or signs. And that would cost a lot of money to change. So you have to kind of understand that your own personal preference or perfectionism was not necessarily the most effective way for the business as a whole as a whole, sorry, and not having worked in an office environment uh, outside of Japan, I can't really say if that's a Japanese thing. But I do think thinking about the whole, thinking about how your one action can affect the whole is a very Japanese uh, element. And of course, I'm not Japanese. So sometimes it's frustrating. And sometimes I feel that you need to 
think about your priorities, but at the same time, learning to kind of take a step back and just being a lot more aware of how my actions might affect something and looking further along and then thinking, well, okay, I guess it doesn't matter that much if you put an out there or you don't put an out there or it says the or it doesn't say the. So when it comes to compromise, that's definitely something that I learned to do a lot. And it's something that I'm carrying through in my freelance career now because I understand that perhaps the person who I'm dealing with directly they might love what I do and think it's absolutely amazing and want to run with that. But then when they take it to their manager or they take it to whatever client they're dealing with, they might not be happy with it and they might want to change it. And that's because perhaps they don't understand what it is I do or they just have their own agenda or they know a lot more than I do about the situation and therefore they know that this is not going to work. And I think before working in-house, I would not have been able to take that on board. I would have hated any red lines through my copy. But now it comes back and I think, oh, okay, so there's probably issues at play here that I'm, I'm not completely aware of. These edits... It's not what I would have gone for, but if that's what you want to run with, then it's your company, it's your brand, then that's totally fine with me. So learning that I think was big. And collaboration, when I was in-house, I, as I, as I mentioned earlier, I was working with an English language team, but I was also working uh, with other people within the company, um, just giving them advice on, on the English that they could use. And what was really interesting for me, this is probably more to do with what I do, but Japanese people who didn't have that much knowledge of English, say if we were brainstorming a particular line in some instructions, they would throw out English words and they don't speak any English. They would like look in a dictionary and they would throw out English words and they were so random that it would work. Because an English speaker would never think of those words because we're always like thinking about logic. So having that kind of unexpected collaboration, I think really opened my mind, really made me realize that I'd been isolating myself quite a lot and just working with other people, especially people who are Japanese and therefore from a different culture to me, really kind of gave me more opportunities to get better at what I do. And I think that was why I was more proactive in connecting with English to Japanese uh, translators on Twitter. And also now on LinkedIn, I'm connecting with people who are like different language translators or people who are not even in my, um, my area because uh, just collaborating with other people really gives you just brand new perspectives, which can, especially as a copywriter, can give you a whole new angle that you, you'd never really seen before because native speakers are masters of what's common and what's normally used. So having an outside perspective to add some spontaneity, I can see how that would be beneficial for copywriting when the point is to try to get people's attention, yeah, yeah. possibly with something that's unfamiliar or new yeah. or interesting. So you mentioned that you're a little bit more direct, maybe. <laughs> so how have you been able to kind of balance that natural inclination you have or other parts of your personality that may not gel so well in a Japanese context with remaining true to yourself and being being the best version of yourself that you want to be in the workplace? How do you find the balance between adapting and being yourself? Yeah, so I think that's, that's quite a difficult thing to do. Firstly, I speak Japanese, so I think that puts me an advantage to a lot of people. I was in Japan for 24 years, which is like more than half my life. So all of my adult life was spent in Japan, which means that 
culturally, especially when it comes to media, so like TV, comedians, music, um, there's a lot of stuff I know there which Japanese people are familiar with. So I can have a conversation with somebody about, you know, a famous Japanese comedian or something like that, which builds up an affinity, which helps me to behave, communicate in a way that Japanese people communicate. I think. And that part of my personality is, you could say, is Japanese. Um, and it's not something that I have to create. It's just something that's there. But as you said, I am also very direct. And I think it's really hard to know when it's okay to show that side of your personality. I think the thing is that it took me a while in Japan to realize that I'm not Japanese. I mean, obviously, I'm not Japanese, but, um, and that that's okay. So I spent a lot of time trying to fit in, especially when my children were younger. I didn't want them to feel that I didn't know how to behave or uh, just because I, I didn't look Japanese or I wasn't Japanese, that I didn't know how to speak Japanese or I didn't know how to read Japanese. So I think I went on a bit of overkill and I was probably behaving more Japanese than a lot of Japanese people were. And I was reluctant to... Uh, say anything or to to be that direct and that straightforward but by the time I started working at a Japanese company I'd had to deal with a couple of difficult situations with my children which had forced me to be a lot more uh, direct so when I went into a Japanese company I was probably in the beginning less Japanese than I should have been partly because I was hired not as say, the mother of two Japanese children, but I was hired as Heidi, an English copywriter. So I felt it was okay for me to behave as, a, as an English person. But then I soon realized that that, that just wasn't going to work because I was working with Japanese, all of my colleagues, the majority of my colleagues, should I say, were Japanese. So I found for me, like humor was always the best way to kind of bridge the gap. I'm quite dark, when it comes to humor. And a lot of Japanese people are also quite dark, not necessarily sarcasm, but there's a lot of, you know, um, you say something and then someone comes back on it and then you come back of it, this kind of banter, which Japanese people are very, very skilled at. And I found that was a way to kind of test the boundaries, to test how direct I can be. So once I'd build up uh, that kind of communication with somebody, then it was easier for me to be more direct with them. But, you know, it's it's difficult because you, you're never, you can never truly be one or the other. You can never truly be completely Japanese and I can never truly be like 100% British because I've, you know, I've grown up in, in both of these countries. So trying to find that balance is probably something I'll always struggle with, I think. But I think I, while I was at um, OLC, I learned a way to communicate with people, which was both authentic and not offensive. <laughs> Great. So it sounds like it was just a lot of trying and being aware of how you were coming off to other people and adapting from there. Yeah, yeah, pretty much. So then would you mind telling us a little bit more about your recent move back home? How was that process like for you? Yeah, so we planned this last April. I think we're not the only people who COVID had a huge effect on. It changed our 
alibi, I mean, my, my husband and me and my children as well, it changed what we were doing. It made us really think about what we wanted to do. And we realized that we didn't want to live where we were living in Japan at that particular time. And we looked around at other places in Japan and we couldn't find anywhere where it would be a good fit for our children. So we decided to move back to the UK for a little bit, at least uh, while the children uh, finished uh, school. And because I was moving, because I was freelance, um, I wasn't that concerned about my job. Um, But marketing, as we already mentioned, is difficult. And then marketing myself to Japanese companies when I'm located in the UK is is even harder so it was really important in that last year that we were there that I build up enough of a clientele to to take with me which fortunately I I did and one of the reasons I gave for moving back to the UK which which isn't a genuine reason is I really felt that my English was not up to date Uh, after 24 years in Japan um, as a translator, no problem at all. But trying to transcribe something, trying to create copy which was relevant, up to date, that would seem natural, I knew that I needed to be immersed in a culture where I was coming into contact with English all the time, either from conversations, advertising, on the TV, you know, anything like that. And that just doesn't happen in Japan. And if I had all the time in the world, sure, I could get magazines, I could like look it up on the internet, but I don't, I don't have time to do that. So it was also a strategic move uh, for my career. And I've been back in the UK for about a month now. And yeah, I mean, <laughs> I'm like a kid in a candy store. Like, oh, wow, look at that sign over there. Hey, did you see that sign on the bus? They're like, oh my God, look at that commercial on the TV. It's so funny. So um, yeah, but then like, but then like after a week, I noticed that, uh, oh, okay, so yeah, you're using the same pattern as that person's. But like, there's this three-liner uh, copy, which I see a lot in UK, and, and it ends in it. So they say, uh, see it, catch it, got it, okay? Or stamp it, post it, track it. These are, these are copies, these are like slogans for two different um brands and the first time I saw it it was like stop it stamp it track it oh that's really great that's you know it's really rhythmical and it's really catchy and then I saw exactly the same technique for a different brand and I've seen it about six times now so I'm thinking that okay so while I'm being you know I've been exposed to a lot more language at the same time being in um being in Japan you were perhaps you're a little bit more inventive because you're not seeing all of those things. So I guess it's, it's you know, it's six and two threes. But yeah, I'm currently, I feel that uh, we made the right choice and I'm very fortunate in that my clients continue to work with me. I now work six UK time, 6 a.m. to 12 p.m. so that I can deal with any issues that might come up uh, in the a.m. So 6 a.m. is 2 p.m. in Japan. And therefore, you know, if I need to deal with anything the same day, I can I can do it then. So it hasn't had that much of a, an impact on uh, what I'm doing at the minute. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I'm glad to hear that everything has been going pretty smoothly, all things considered. Mm-hmm. So what long-term impact do you think it might have on your business? That 
to be honest, it's really hard to tell. Mm-hmm. I think that skill-wise, I will definitely be able to improve my copywriting skills a lot more here. There is so much opportunity for development and I just have a lot more time because I have my family close. So for practically, I can concentrate on my work a lot more. The only issue is how to get more clients. And that is just not something that I can predict. In Japan, as I'm sure you're aware, recommend recommendations are the best way to get more clients. So as long as I consistently produce good work, then my clients will recommend me to somebody else. But actual practical marketing, like going out there and handing out business cards or you know, being able to phone somebody up or to, to actually be there, I mean, that's not something I can do from the UK. And I know that translators who are based in the UK, they go back to Japan every so often to, to do that. I'm not really sure if I, if I need to do that. But for me personally, I feel confident that this plan will work and uh, what I'm doing will will grow. And then if it doesn't, I guess we'll just go back. <laughs> we'll go back to Japan. But but yeah, I think, I mean, there aren't that many people who are focused on transcreation, who are Japanese to English transcreation. There are a lot of Japanese, there are a lot of translators who can do it and who are really, really great at copywriting and just as good as I am. But not many people talking about it on social media. So I feel at least... For the minute, I have the advantage there that once transcreation, if transcreation does become less of a buzzword and more of an actual thing in Japan, then, you know, I'll be the person there who's been talking about it and communicating it for, for a long time. Yeah, if you're not already following Heidi on LinkedIn, you should definitely do so just to kind of get an idea of some ways that you can be more involved on LinkedIn, some ways that you can connect with people it's a very good example of how to be effective on LinkedIn. (laughs) So do you have an example of a communication breakdown that you've experienced that you think is due to differences in culture? I don't know if you could call it a communication breakdown, but so when you're speaking to somebody in Japanese, they don't really give you a lot of information. It's quite vague. You've got to get the gist of it. You've got to read between the lines. Um, Whereas, as I said before, personality wise, I'm a lot more direct and I find that quite frustrating. But conversely, when you prepare for a meeting or you give a presentation, Japanese presentations are incredibly detailed. It's almost as if leaving room for questions is unprofessional. And that's something that I I wasn't really aware of when I first started working at a company uh, in Japan. And that kind of contradiction, I think I found that quite hard to, to deal with and to understand at the beginning. So not being very clear in what they were saying. And then you'd go into a presentation and everything was was kind of written there. And I was expecting like a discussion or like a brainstorming session, but it wasn't. You were you were like you were you were getting a lecture or you were taking part in a seminar. And um, I think it took me a while to kind of read that and understand that that was the way that things were done. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a communication breakdown but yeah it was a learning experience it was something that I had to I had to get used to Mm -hmm. that is such an interesting dichotomy that you'll encounter in Japan definitely a good thing to be aware of before you get into the country definitely so if you were chatting with somebody who is going to Japan for business and they only had time to learn one thing about the country or its culture ahead of time 
what would you choose to teach them? Things happen really slowly in Japan, but when they happen, they're really, really effective. People need time to plan, they need to think, they need to look at all of the angles, and they need to consider how it's going to affect every single aspect of a company or a department. And it looks like nothing's happening. It looks like people are just um, finding excuses to not do something, but it's not. They're just incredibly risk averse. And understanding that and thinking of that risk aversity as a positive thing, I think can help you be a little bit less frustrated and to kind of accept that as part of the, the process. Um, because it does help you as well. If your plan or your idea gets knocked out it's not because it was a bad idea it's just because they looked at things which you were not able to consider and they they just came to that conclusion at the same time I do want to say that there's a lot of mysticism about Japan and Japanese culture but Japanese people are you know a huge mix and the culture is a huge mix as well so even though a Japanese company has a very different culture to a culture in the west on an individual level it's very easy to find somebody who you can communicate with and if you are having trouble uh, getting through something uh, from a bureaucratic level then just communicating with your team on an individual level that builds up trust and that helps you to kind of understand and navigate the way a Japanese company is and I think that's why I was able to settle in quite well at OLC because I had communicated with Japanese people on an individual level for so long before going in there that even though I found the way the company was run very alien to me, working with people, talking to people was a way for me to understand it and also a way to make myself understood. So yeah, that's actually two things, but I think they're both equally important. Definitely. So is there anything that you wish that we had been able to talk a little bit more about or anything that we should discuss before we wrap things up for today? No, I think we covered everything. Um, I had a really nice time talking to you. And yeah, like you said, if you want to follow me or connect with me even on LinkedIn, I'm always open to connections. And if you want to know more about transcreation, there is a blog by a lady called Nina, who is a English to German transcreation specialist. And I would say that she is really the, the expert on this subject, uh, Nina Sattler Hofta. Um, and if you wanted to learn more about what it is and what it does, then uh, she has this really big blog on it. And uh, yeah, it's a very interesting read. Great. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time. Yep. Thank you. I hope that you enjoyed today's conversation. If you would like to learn more about Heidi, her work in transcreation, or get some inspiration on how you can use LinkedIn to effectively attract and educate potential clients, be sure to check out the links in the description of this episode. If you enjoyed today's episode, go ahead and share it with a friend, colleague, or connection on LinkedIn to help spread the perspectives and information shared in the podcast. And please remember to go ahead and subscribe or follow on whatever platform you're using, and also to leave a rating and review if you enjoyed the podcast. If you would like to support the podcast, please check out my link to the show's coffee page to keep me well caffeinated and making content. As always, feel free to email me at businesssuccessjapan at gmail.com if you have any other questions, comments, or suggestions for future episodes or interview topics. I'd love to hear from you directly. So if you'd like to leave a voice message, you can find the link to do that in the description as well. 
But for now, remember that the more you learn, the more confident you will become as you explore all of the opportunities Japan has to offer you. Until next time, mata kondo!